Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2, where we're going to be today. I'm going to wrap up this chapter. Uh, we're going to be in verses 16 through 18, most specifically. I want for you to have a right thinking about your past and about your present and, of course, about your future. It's good for us, isn't it? To take stock of our life, to count our blessings, to remember from where we have come and the good that we have in our life in Christ. But if you have any wrong thinking that has infected the mind or the heart about where you've come and where you are, you might be missing just what an amazing blessing you have in Christ today. And so my hope and prayer as I was preparing for this would be that worship would be the result of hearing of these things. It's quite often that as a pastor, as I'm preparing for a sermon, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, what is this passage going to be useful to prop up or to help the Christian in in this coming week? How can this passage be helpful for the non-believer who hears it? Some passages are application heavy. It says exactly what we should do in light of a truth. And other passages, like this one, tell us of something that is true and glorious and that should be helpful for us. So I want to go ahead and read the passage, 16 through 18. And after reading that, I'm going to pray for this passage and then walk through it. Hope that it'll be a service for you. Let's do that. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, in your holiness, in your infinite wisdom, in your grace and mercy, you have condescended to deliver truth to us in your word. Father, we're so grateful for that. And before we even begin this morning, we have to pause and, and just thank you that as sinful creatures, Father, who have set ourselves against you in our nature, and by our choices, you have loved so deeply to redeem from this earth and to deliver truth to that we may not only have salvation, but that we may be helped every day of our lives in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning those things would just wash over us, that we would feel and see those things, and that my brothers and sisters here today who need encouragement would be greatly encouraged by this. So, Lord, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our author here, Hebrews, has been making a case in the past couple of chapters. Chapter 1, he, he over and over rang the gong that the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament would be greater than the angels. In chapter 2, he's been making a case that this Great Messiah, greater than the angels, has condescended, has, has become as one of us, as humanity. 
He continues in verse 16 on that same line of thinking. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It is not angels that he helps. When he says for surely, he's meaning that certainly you already know this. This has been laid out already. This chapter has been pointed to us to see that as the recipients of the Messiah's blessing, we are human recipients And it is not angels, mostly, that he is seeking to bless. While Jesus is greater than the angels, he fully identifies with us in order to save us. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And he'll go on to explain that it's to us in our ultimate glorification in heaven. And chiefly, mostly, represented by Jesus. The author just stated a couple of verses prior to this, verses 14 through 15, that Jesus delivers us from the power of the devil by eliminating our fear of death. And if, I, if you were here last week, you'd see that that doesn't mean that we don't ever struggle with that, but we don't have any basis upon which to plant fear of death that has been robbed from our enemy in Jesus. But angels who do not die don't have a fear of death. We do. It's another way that we see that Jesus here is being proved to serve and to help people, not the angels. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, if you have a King James Version of the Bible, it'll say this. He took not on him the nature of angels. For surely he took not on him the nature of angels. You see, the term used here in Greek is literally take hold of. And so some people prefer a different English translation here to say that Jesus took on humanity rather than taking on the nature of an angel. In fact, if you do have a King James Version with you today, it's likely in italics because that language is not exactly there. But some commentators, some translators of the Bible think that that might be the the meaning here. Now that, of course, is true. Both of those phrases are true, that Jesus did not come to help the angels, and he also did not take on the nature of angels. Both of those are true. The question is, what is he saying here? And it is difficult to know with certainty which precise point the author intends to make with that exact phrase. Nevertheless, either way, the point that the author aims to make is quite clear to us. It is that humans are the ones that Jesus helps, not the angels. This chapter provides four reasons, depending on how you count them, for why Jesus became human. We've been walking through some of these in past weeks. He did not just hover above the surface of the earth, perhaps as an angel might. He actually came into our world, became one of us, for four reasons. Number one, so that he could fully identify with us. He could call us brothers. Number two, so that he could die. Number three, so that he could become our great high priest, as we're going to see today. And again, as we're going to see today, this is number four, so that he could help us when we are being tempted. And in order to accomplish these things, the author makes it clear that he could not just become partially like us, but as it continues in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus really did become one of us. I wonder if you've ever seen art 
Christian art from the Middle Ages. I, I say Christian art, but pretty much all art from the Middle Ages was Christian, if it's from Europe and Western Europe especially. Christian art from the Middle Ages. It almost always depicts Jesus with a sort of haloed crown behind his head. Have you seen this kind of art before like this? Even when it's showing the, the picture of Jesus as a baby, it's oftentimes got glowing kind of rays of light coming out. It's almost as though he's floating through earth, his feet never quite touching the ground. Now, we can understand that as this is illustrating his holiness or perhaps his divinity, right? That's probably what the author intends mostly to convey. But I think that those kind of images of Jesus can cause us to have a less than clear view of what the man Jesus was really like. He really became like one of us in every respect. Just a little bit ago back here, I was holding our littlest baby. She's not yet 10 months old, and I was giving Laura a break while she's squirming. And she's just rolling over and making bubbles with her mouth and just all this stuff. And I, I thought, as we were singing the line, in help, fullness of God and helpless babe, and she's going, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, Jesus did this kind of stuff. It's sinless, it's, it's pure, it's natural for a human. He really became like one of us, like his brothers in every respect. That means not only did he put on flesh, like it was a costume, but that, as, as some of the ancient Christians would say, he took on our affections, our feelings, our emotions. He felt like we would feel. He emoted the way we might emote, and yet sinlessly. He really became like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I'm going to pause there for a second. What comes to mind when you think of the word priest? Well, biblically, you might go, like, well, the Old Testament Hebrew people had priests, and then they had high priests. Some of you might be thinking, well, the New Testament actually says that there's a kind of priesthood of all believers. Yes. Some of you might have your mind switched to other religions that even today have priests by that title, by that meaning. What is a priest? Well, a priest in the Old Testament, upon which this author in Hebrews is building, the priest was a mediator that stood between God and his people and related to God on behalf of the people. So you might know that, that a prophet was also a mediator. And he would stand between God and the people, and he would relate to the people on behalf of God. So he'd hear from God, and he'd speak to the people. The priest stood in the same place in the opposite direction. The priest heard from the people, dealt with the people, and related that to God. That's why it says that Jesus had to be made like us. It might seem that it goes without saying that a priest had to be human. In other words, neither an angel, which is above us in created order, or an animal below us in created order could fulfill the role for people. It had to be a person, a human this is why it said that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest.
priest. He represents us before the Father. So already in just two chapters in this epistle, in chapter 1, the author has established that Jesus fulfills the role of prophet. And here he establishes that Jesus fulfills the role of high priest. He is our final prophet and our ultimate high priest. He fulfills both roles. This is why we can see clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that it says of Jesus, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. How many mediators? One. He's it. Jesus, prophet and priest, is the only and sole mediator between God and men. Now, some people in Christian history, and perhaps even today in certain spheres, might say that a priest is basically a pastor, but that's not quite right. I think that the term pastor is more appropriate because it is a shepherding term that is used in the New Testament to describe the nature of the work of an elder. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, Peter writes, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So the elders are to shepherd. The elders are to pastor. When we call someone today a pastor, we are not referring primarily to an office, but to a function. This is why we interchange here at the Mission Church and throughout church history, that we interchange the term elder and pastor oftentimes, because as, 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 as the role that I carry here at this church, I'm an elder biblical term of that office, and what does an elder do? He pastors. That's why we often interchange that term. One reason that I think it is an especially appropriate title, as distinct from priest, is that the pastor is not a mediator between you and God. A pastor is not a go-between, while the language of a priest is to be understood as a go-between. And those religions that tend to use the priest language do typically see that office holder as one who mediates between God and us. I don't think this is just semantics, just vocabulary, just words. I think it's actually helpful. In the days of the Reformation, where, where the Christians were trying to see, were not trying to go down the paths of error We've seen in the past, this is when the title pastor started to become much more utilized, especially by Protestants, saying we're not mediators. We don't stand between our people and God. We shepherd our people toward God. It always amazes me, though. This is one of those things that just blows my mind. It always amazes me how many people crave to have a human mediator between them and God. How many religions today find comfort in an earthly human priest? They neglect to realize that we already have a mediator. And you can only have one. You can have Jesus or you can have a sinful man. 
And what kind of high priest is Jesus? One that is merciful and faithful. Jesus is both faithful to God and merciful to men. He fulfills both for us. Verse 17 continues. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And when's the last time you used that term at home? Unless you're talking about Bible stuff, you probably aren't using that term very often. In fact, different translations of the English Bible will use different terms here to make atonement for, reconcile. That kind of language will be utilized here. But I think that the word propitiation is the most helpful. Even if it causes us to go, what does that word mean? And you have to seek out the definition of it. I want you to listen in for a second because this is one of the most important gospel truths that you should internalize. You should teach this big word to your kids. You should know this word for yourselves. I'm going to use a a helpful definition I found here by Charles Ryrie. He says, propitiation is the turning away of God's wrath by an offering. The turning away of God's wrath by an offering. So to propitiate is to appease, to pardon, forgive, show mercy, make reconciliation. All these are words that help us build an understanding of propitiation, even if they don't build it all the way yet. Now here's why I especially want to pause here for you today, to make propitiation. I'm going to use a good amount of our time here. Some of you may know that one of the biggest theological battles today is being fought over whether or not Jesus actually died on our behalf or just to be an example for us. Whether Jesus actually made propitiation or whether he didn't. Many people in the theological intelligentsia today view the doctrine of propitiation as cosmic child abuse for God to kill his innocent son. Furthermore, to many, it just seems nonsensical to people that the death of one person should in any way affect another person. What does that guy dying have to do with me? What does that guy dying thousands of years ago have to do with me today or any other people in the future, or for that matter, anyone in his day? In order for the doctrine of propitiation to make any sense, you have to understand something. Your sin makes God angry. Your sin makes God angry. Many people think of their sin as simply breaking the speed limit. Traffic violation. You ever gotten a ticket? Gotten a traffic ticket before? When the police officer wrote you that ticket, it was likely that he was kind of cold and impersonal. License registration. Are you going too fast? Here's the ticket. Did you get the sense that you ruined that cop's day for going 40 in a 25? 
It was likely that it did not come across as an affront to the character of that police officer. But you dare speed. But our sin against God is much more personal than that. This is why that's a wrong way of thinking. This is why the Bible makes it so clear that God is angry at your sin. I want you to get this picture. Propitiation will hang, right? A right understanding of this will hang on whether or not you get this picture right. And if some wrong thinking has invaded your mind in the course of your life, that you see God in heaven as a benevolent grandpa who's going, no, no, why are you sinning? He's not asking why. He knows exactly why you sin. And he cares deeply about our sin. And he hates our sin. A common and helpful passage in Romans chapter 1 that kind of gives us the sweeping arc over all of humanity. God's disposition towards all of humanity. Romans 1.18. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How much ungodliness and righteousness? All of it. What do we do with it? We suppress the truth. And what is revealed from heaven? Now listen carefully here because I don't know if your mind does this sometimes. Have you ever seen phrases in the Bible or in other literature maybe that if you don't quite pause to think about it very well, maybe in a song you've heard or something, you don't quite think critically about it, you might fill in meaning that's not intended there. I'll just, I'll just share this with you. In my mind, the meaning that had often filled in that term, wrath of God, the meaning that had replaced it in my mind as I read over it, as I was growing up in a Christian church and as I heard the gospel preached many times, what came to me when I read a verse like this is, for the punishment for sin is revealed from heaven. Because we all know, if you keep going in Romans, that's what's going to happen. We're going to see punishment for sin. That's not what it says here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is not punishment for sin being spoken of here. This is God's wrath. His outrage. His fury. And this is not human outrage. We might think of outrage as tainted with sin and spoiled by all of our creaturely imperfections. But this is a divine, holy fury. Psalm 45 Verse 7 says, O God, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see, and this is not the picture of the cop. Well, you did this wrong, so here's, here's what you have to do. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God's righteousness demands that he hate evil. You know God hates? You know we're commanded to hate What are we to hate? Evil. Love what is good. Abhor what is evil, as God does. When he looks down on this earth, that's what he sees. He sees all day, every day. And he feels indignation, the unrighteousness that he sees. It makes him angry. Isaiah 34, verse 2 says, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Nahum 1.6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? It says anger. 
Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So again, scrub your thinking. Have you pictured, have you pictured kind of like a courtroom drama where there's a judge there and he kind of listens with the spectacles, looks down, hears all the things and it's going down, hears the offenses listed out, looks down, uh, delivers sentence, gavel, and walks off. That's not what it looks like. Who can endure the heat of his anger? Our sin is a personal affront to our infinitely holy God that warrants his right wrath against us. Now the reason I'm pausing and showing you the tip of the iceberg of wrath verses in the Old and New Testaments is because if you cannot imagine a God that is angry at people, angry at you in your sinful nature, the cross will make no sense to you. I want you to imagine for a moment your next door neighbor out of hatred, envy, spite sneaks over to your house in the night and douses the walls of your home with gasoline, lights a match and burns everything you own to the ground. You get out with your family, but every earthly possession you have is gone. Now I want you to imagine that somehow you were to calculate the cost, the value of what was lost. Stick for stick, book for book, pair of socks for pair of socks, and that neighbor were to pay 100% of the value of what has been burned. Are you and your neighbor all good now? You see, the neighbor, what he just did is he expiated. He dealt with the effect of the sin, the problem. You don't have a house and stuff anymore. And so he corrected that by giving you a house and stuff again. That's what we call expiation. And some people wrongly insert expiation into this passage. They don't say propitiation, it's expiation. That means that Jesus, Jesus just dealt with the sin. But Jesus did far more than that. Because you and your neighbor are not good. He's not invited to your barbecue anymore. In fact, put the matches down, right? <laughs> because there's been relational damage. He dealt a blow against you personally, you and your home, your household, out of hatred and spite. He meant to hurt you. And just paying off the money to deal with your loss of stuff is not sufficient. You will forever be at odds unless reconciliation is made. How can we possibly hope to satisfy God's wrath, be reconciled to Him? The answer is, we cannot. Not sufficiently. So he satisfied it for us. By sending his son. First John 4.10 In this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, it's so beautiful. So many people embrace the doctrine of God's love, but it's not as though God was indifferent towards you and then love came about. And it's not as though His love towards you was the same prior than it would be after your regeneration. But that in your sin, God was furious with you and with me. His anger toward us, satisfied in Jesus, now comes to us in love. That's why it's in this is love. Not that we've loved God. Not, not that out of a heartfelt, I'm so, I can't believe I burned down your house. I love you. I love you. I love you. How did I do that? And that's not the way we came to Him. You might feel that now in your heart as a new creation before God. Amen. You ought to. But that's not how you got saved. That's not how your issues were dealt with. It's not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. He extended that. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to make reconciliation, to appease or to satisfy the wrath of God, to turn away the wrath of God. God is no longer angry at you. Yes, God hates sin. And he will daily provide his son to help deal with the temptations you face. We're going there next. Next verse. But God's disposition towards you now is that of a son or a daughter adopted into his family. It is love. And that love is built on the basis, that, that saving love finds its basis in the satisfaction of God's wrath in Jesus if you're in Jesus, he's no longer angry with you. You have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus says this in John 3, 36. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The person who does not yet believe in Jesus, what is on him? The wrath of God. The fury and anger of God. But when a person gets saved, we become a new creation. It is now the new man. It is now the new woman that relates to God without any relational baggage. You can have peace with God. Romans 3, 23 through 26. It starts with a really famous verse in the book of Romans. But listen to where it goes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
In God we see here again, like it is in Hebrews 2, merciful and faithful. He doesn't throw out the rules, be faithless in order to deal with our sin. He maintains faithfulness in that he remains just and he justifies us in mercy. So what does this mean for us? Continue. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In becoming one of us, Jesus suffered. And it is this experience of suffering that makes him suited to help us in our temptation. Now, which suffering is in view here? Real quick here, just in case you're trying to land here. I was wondering the same when I was reading through this. Which suffering is in view here? Because it says in Luke twenty two twenty eight, Jesus says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. He's not, he's not died yet. You have stayed with me in my trials. He considered his life and his ministry that of trials, tribulations, suffering. And he certainly did. People tried to kill him. People hated and mocked him. The demons tried to cry out against him. His own family turned him away. Mass groups of his own followers, when he wouldn't give them enough bread or didn't understand what he was saying, would turn on him, abandon him. The man Jesus would not have been able to help us in the same way if he had not suffered in the ways that we suffer. So which suffering is in view? I think that it is the accumulative sufferings of his life culminating in his death. In other words, Jesus didn't just suffer the things of life. He suffered the things of life up to death. It's not that he, he suffered and struggled the trials that we might have to deal with and then was just taken to heaven apart from the suffering of death. Because of both, he capped off a life full from beginning to end of suffering that he might relate to us, identify with us, help us who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. So the help that Jesus provides us is not just the entrance into the kingdom through salvation, as though Jesus was like the bouncer standing at the front of the party. And he, he let you in, and now you go in alone. And you live the rest of your Christian life apart from him. Having nothing more to do with him for the rest of your earthly days. You need Jesus every day. See, this can be a wrong way of thinking, can't it? I need Jesus to get saved. Thanks, Jesus. You need Jesus' help every day. And because of his life, and because ultimately of his death, he is able to help you when you are being tempted. The book of Hebrews is almost certainly written primarily to encourage suffering, persecuted Christians. Almost certainly what's the case. We see it in almost every chapter referenced exactly. That's probably what's most in the mind of this author, right? You've you, you got to get that in, in your mind, people. He's saying as he's writing this, I know you're going to endure suffering. I know you're going to be persecuted. And Jesus is the chief representative of that. He, he gets it more than anybody does. He's able to help you 
while you're being tempted in this. There is no category of temptation that you and I suffer that Jesus did not experience. No category. You're going to face all kinds of temptations this week, you and I both. And apart from Jesus, on our own efforts, we're going to fall again and again and again and again. But because God's disposition towards us now is not that of wrath and anger, but love, he continually extends the help in suffering and temptation that we may win the battles every day. I hope that can be an encouragement to you as it is for me. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are well served by your word. Again, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, that we would lean on Jesus every day, that we would look for him in every page of the scriptures here, that we would be encouraged in all the things that we struggle with, every sin, every persecution, every temptation, Lord, that we would come back to you, that we would seek your face, seek help from the God who loves us, has forgiven us, has delivered us from the one who has the power of death. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, who may hear this. Lord, I pray they would not wait any longer to turn away from their sin, that they would, they would look full into the face of your wrath and see the, your anger against us and that they would feel the weight of what it's like for the creator of the universe to be angry towards us and the sweet release of that wrath through belief in Jesus Christ, appeasing, satisfying God's wrath, turning it away from us. Lord, we need your help to feel that and to see it. Apart from your spirit, God, these are just words from a man spoken from a pulpit. Even reading your words out loud, Lord, I know many have read your word this Bible, and by spiritual blindness have not seen these things. Lord, I pray that you'd convict the heart and draw people to you through this. Father, for those believers who, who may someday run into this error of thinking that Jesus did not die on behalf of his people, Lord, I pray that you would expose truth through all of the words of Scripture that you would let us, let us see these truths as, as sweet and wonderful and as beautiful, and that they would, they would make us love you more, worship you more, help one another more, and seek salvation of the lost even more because of it. I'm going to pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.